If you're looking wistfully out the window at a frozen or snowy gray day, you know that winter can be a real drag. Some birds fly south for the winter, and sometimes those birds clog up South Florida roadways. But what if you could fly so far south that it became spring again? That's what the bar-tailed godwit does, but soaring into the wild blue yonder in search of opportunity can really pay off in life, death, and taxonomy. Welcome back to Life, Death, and Taxonomy. It's your 30 minutes of interesting animal information. I'm Joe. And I'm Carlos. Thank you to Cassie for the creation of our theme song. To hear more of Cassie's music, please search Cassie Michelle on YouTube or Spotify. And thank you to Johanna for the creation of this week's artwork. To check that out, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at LD Taxonomy or visit us at our home on the web at LDTaxonomy.com. And a very special thank you to our patrons. To Tristan Taylor, Jesse Raspolich, Carol Raspolich, and Richard Kaspar. Thank you so much for your support. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks for helping us keep the lights on. And today we're talking about Godwit the Sorin, but more on that later. Oh, that's my... It is? It's my nickname. No, that's not the same thing. I said Godwit the Bolden, but because it just worked That's better. good, too. That's <laughs> good, too. We haven't talked about Elden Ring in enough time, so <laughs> it, it's it's been too long. So, but yes, we are talking about the bar-tailed godwit, which this is the first I'm learning about the entire um, genus of of birds. This is a kind of bird. There are terns, there are gulls, and there are godwits. Yeah. Which the ornithologists are just wishing they could slap me in the face going, of course there are godwits. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, interesting uh, category of bird. We're going to call it here the uh, godwit the bolden, which is what I already said. It's a deep Elden Ring cut. Not, actually, no. If you've played Elden Ring, then you know what I'm talking about. It's not that deep of a cut. Um, we're also going to call it the Trail of Spears. Because they their beaks are like spears. Um, <clears throat> the uh, educated voters, because they head to the polls. <laughs> <laughs> Bibby gets credit for that one. That's that's one that she came up with while we were bathing the kids tonight. Um, and then Darth Waiter. Nice. It's a waiter. And yeah. it's just. And it's gonna serve you up a delicious platter of uh, of interesting animal facts. It sure we're, is. We'll be your waiters this evening, or morning, or whenever you're listening. Is but, there uh, a science about it? Uh, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sciences for this Sick. one. Yeah. So, so buckle in. Because we're gonna we're gonna go through all of them. Science number one is that it's in the kingdom you know, love, and and are in, and that's Animalia. The phylum is Chordata. The class is Aves. This is a bird. The order is Chirondriformes. That's a nice one, Chirondriformes. Mm -hmm. That's that's uh, that sounds like a, a magic card link to a, a planeswalker. Um, this is gulls and other water birds. 
not all water birds, but many water uh, ocean fowl are in this order. The family is Scolopacidae, which is sandpipers in particular. Um, the genus is Limosa, which is godwits in specifically. These are large uh, migratory wading birds, meaning that they um, they walk, you know, knee deep or joint deep in water and look for food there, kind of like a heron. Except, um, I was wondering, like, why why do why aren't like herons and egrets in this? And I th think, uh, and this is this is me talking without research. I think it's because they don't uh, migrate. That must be the difference. Hmm. Um, because they also have, you know, they have long spear beaks and they, they hunt in a sim similar fashion. Um, the species is Laponica. So Limosa Laponica. And there are several subspecies as well. <clears throat> um, but that is the nomenclature. And since we are in the business of naming things, it's time for my favorite part of the show. C -c -c critter groups, the part of the show where I ask you, Joe, a question, and that question is the same every time. What is the name of a group of this animal, or what is the term of venery, or what is the collective noun? Three ways to say the same thing, or to ask the same question. If you saw a group of godwits, what would you call them? Would you call them A, a college of godwits, B, a collage of godwits? C, a pantheon of godwits, or D, a mission of godwits. A collage, final answer. It's incorrect. Is I it, am, is I can't, college? I, I, I was, I thought that was a throwaway. Um, it's a pantheon. Uh, well, see, the thing is, I thought that one made sense. <laughs> Mission and Pantheon made sense. It does sense. make sense. So they can't be a term yeah, of venery if they gotcha. make sense. They most certainly can. Could. <laughs> they have a murder of crows. Crows are... A... They're murderous. <laughs> um, yes. a, a, a congregation of praying mantises? Uh, Fair, yeah. Well, those are the those are the exceptions that prove the rule. There, there are some there are there are some really good ones there, and uh, and birds birds tend to have some some really really good collective nouns. I'm always excited to do a bird specifically because I know critter groups is going to be good. It's a pantheon of godwits, like that. <laughs> That's awesome. There are also some other good ones. So if for some reason we lose this footage. Or we do another Godwit, we will have, uh, oh, there's more material there. It's ripe, ripe for the picking. They come in clutch, those ornithologists. Yep. Yep, yep. Uh, do you know, want to know what this guy looks like? Sure. So, this looks like a big sandpiper. That is the, that is the gist. It has, has a longer beak than sandpiper. And yes, it is bigger, longer legs. Uh, its feather color depends on the time of year. During breeding season, uh, males have a chestnut to like, a, um, oh, what's that? What's the word for like a 
reddish brown russet russell uh yeah rouge uh like that like that um that hummingbird rufus um rufus yes rufus uh face and neck and, and chest and belly uh they have dark brown and white plumage on their wings and tails this is breeding season so that's um uh it's very it's it's, it's a striking bird um not not like bright colors but it's very very rich colors um other times of the year outside of breeding season they have white white grayish brown um so it's it's duller it's more faded it's kind of like if you left one of these guys out in the sun um in like the back of you like the 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 back of your car above the the back seat under the window like if you leave something back there for too long uh it's a, it, all the colors are sucked out of it by the sun because I'm, i mean i'm sure that's how the sun works it just sucks color out of things right um it's a color it's a color vampire yeah um, and we should all be afraid but yeah so it's it's got uh duller plumage in the in in the off season um it gets its name from the horizontal black bars that go across its tail feathers. So it is the bar-tailed godwit. Um, it has the long-angled wings of kind of a, a gull. So it's it's got this boomerang-looking shape uh, when it's flying. Um, and it has a, a thin, sharp, long beak for snapping up underwater worms and clams. Uh, that's a, that's, that's sandpiper.txt. Um uh, and it also has thin, long legs for splooshing around in the water, which is less sandpiper.txt and more like, you know, like a heron or something like that. Something that a wader uh, at Olive Garden. And I think that's, that's, that's good to go for the description. This is larger than your typical sandpiper, though. So, Joe, how much larger is it? I well, all of my answers to be in form of sandpipers. Welcome to the the beloved measure up segment, the official listener, official listener's favorite part of the show. The part of the show when nice, we, nice. we present the animal size and dimensions in relatable terms through a quiz that's fun for the whole family. It's also part of the show that's introduced by you when you send an audio of yourself saying, saying you're chittering the words measure up into LD taxonomy at gmail.com. We don't have any measure up intro this week, but we do have a follow up email from Nora. Oh, talking about we talked about her three-legged husky, and uh, oh yes, she says I showed I showed up to the rescue and asked for a dog that could handle the world's most annoying four-year-old, and this is what they gave me. So I guess a <laughs> a, uh, a husky has got the temperament, and I guess that the the lack of leg has humbled it and given it some perspective. So it's a sage husky. And then she said, that's me saying that. Um, and now here's what she says. Uh, she's ex excellence, uh, read children. We give her massages to get rid of phantom limb pain. Do you know dogs can get phantom limb pain? I, I imagine that anything can get phantom limb pain, especially a mammal. Well, I, you could, I, I assume that maybe like phantom limb pain was the, was the result of like higher brain function and, you know, you expecting, maybe not. 
Uh, she says, I swear I never set out to own weird pets, but Shyla, I assume is the dog, is good with kids. And a friend was so Shyla or Sheila? It's Shyla. It's like, uh, how do you spell Sheila? With a Y? I think it's S-H-E-I-L-A. Oh, no, it's S-H-I-L-A. Okay. I mean, S-H-Y-L-A. I can't read letters. And the wrinkled cat's okay, name Okay, that is sounds Pearl. like Shiloh. She a sent a video. For a wrinkled she cat. sent a video. And this dog can really move for having one less leg than the other dogs in the dog park. Maybe that the leg it's missing um, contained all of its irritability. And so now it's the perfect dog for the world's <laughs> most annoying four-year-old. I, I'd be interested to... Uh, it did that leg... The, the missing leg also contain its husky um, readiness to like sing the song of its people. Cause I know huskies can be really loud and yelly. Huskies don't like me. I like, I, I get along with all kinds of dogs, but for some reason, whenever we were at the dog park and there was a husky there, it was just, stare me down and growl is it the is it one husky or is it no, no, any it was, husky you've ever seen it was any husky how do you know was it's not the same husky the at the park. dog park because they they come in different shapes and sizes and colors <laughs> fair enough there's like brownish huskies and thanks for the update black huskies uh Nora's putting the team on her back in terms of listener engagement once again um but let's get in to this measure up funny oh since uh, we don't have a new measure up intro that means uh we have to we have to hear from an animal and carl's list to guess what it is without further ado the listener's favorite part of the show Could that be? What are my options? Here's a hint. Here are the options. Is it A, a sheep? B, a capuchin monkey? C, a raven? Or D, a bar-tailed godwit? Man, that sounds just like the bird that they put in... Um, in ghost of tsushima that like leads you to secrets on the island like has a very similar cry to that so i was really hoping that you were gonna say four different kinds of birds and one of them was gonna be like the yellow japanese <laughs> song or something like that and i was gonna be like got it i knew that one thanks to video games um <laughs> the mocking jay no that's not that's not a real bird is it no um I'll go with the godwit. I really did. It doesn't sound like it could possibly be a sheep. Um, monkey <laughs> is a possibility. Um, I don't know what the third thing was, but I'm going to go with godwit. Final answer. Yep. The correct answer was the thing you couldn't remember. It was a raven. Oh, a raven. <laughs> 
I've uh, never heard a raven make that sound. Ravens can make a ton of different sounds. They're quite talented. Let's talk about length. Yeah. Already? Oh, what? Yeah. Never more. I was going to say. Uh, they're between 37 and 41 centimeters or uh, 15 and 16 inches. How many godwits go into the length of Frodo's journey from Bag End to Mount Doom? Oh, this is fun. <laughs> 16 inches. Here's a hint. There are several estimates for the distance traveled, but we're going to go with uh, the estimate made by cartographer Karen Wynn Fonstad. And the trip also took 80, 183 days. Yeah. Well, when they were in Lothlorien, there was all kinds of timey-wimey nonsense happening, so who knows how long it took. Um. I mean, I have, I know exactly where they went and all this stuff. I have no idea how far this stuff is. They also spent like um, what a month in Rivendell. Oh, spent man. a long time in Rivendell. Well, the 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 Hobbit spent a long time with Tom Bombadil at the get go. I thought that was only a few days. A, a lot of. It took them days just to get there. They spent some time with some of the Wood Elves on the way. They got captured by the Barrow, the Barrow Whites. They spent some time with Tom Bombadil. Um, then there's, uh, yeah, Rivendell was a while. Lorien, Lothlorien was was a long time. They were lost in um, Imminwheel for like for a, f a few weeks, I believe. Um. And they stayed with Faramir for a little while in Ithilien. So, and it took them like a week to get across Mordor. Once, even once they got in there. Um. So the movie makes things seem like they they took not very much time, but in the book, everything takes longer in the book, including reading it. Um. I mean, I I really I really don't know. If Bree is six a six day walk, at least from Rivendell, that's a long way. They have um, short legs, though. Yeah, so it's even longer for them. I mean, it's the same distance, but takes more effort. Uh, I'm going to say uh, a thousand miles. That sounds like way too much. No, I mean, in six months, I could go, you could walk a thousand miles. Yeah, because the Appalachian Trail goes from Georgia to Maine, and that takes seven months for through hikers to walk. And those are like full grown humans. So, um, and that's at least, that's like a, I think upwards of 2,000 miles. So, I'm going to go 1,000 miles. Final answer? Or no? Uh, no, because I need to figure out how many Godwits go in there. Mm -hmm. At least a few. 3.9 million. Final answer? Godwits. Yes. Yes, yes. The correct answer is 7 million Godwits.
It is a, what, a 1,500-mile journey? 1,779. Uh-huh. Or 2,769. 1779. It was long. That is yeah. a long way. But I'll, apparently, They're like, in back again. Uh, we could all make better time. Apparently, than, than the hobbits, it, they, they had a lot of uh, yeah, it detours. Help, yeah, it helps to not constantly be captured, and it also helps to be taller. It does indeed, and to not have an ancient evil strapped around your neck. <laughs> I I was reading an article that literally said that it's like you could do a lot better if you walk like fifteen, uh, twelve miles in a day, like the an average person can. But you also would wouldn't have a uh, uh, the most powerful evil in the world around your neck, so it will be harder for for Frodo, poor Frodo. Just put it in a box or a like your backpack or something. Why does it have to be around your neck? Like take it off your neck and put it in your backpack and forget about it and just move on. I mean, it's going to be whispering your name the whole time, <laughs> but like. Just think of just put on your earbuds. What if you lose your backpack? It's more safe. Your AirPods on your neck. Everyone loses it. their. What AirPods. if you lose your neck? <laughs> That's true. Well, then you don't have to. You're worry gonna about lose your neck anymore. Be- You're gonna lose your neck because this thing is like at the end of the movie, his neck is just like just charred with how heavy this thing is. Anyway, we're on a detour, but. Let's talk about like the Hobbits. female. We're deep, we're deep. Yeah, the, I guess, tell Faramir to bring us where we're supposed to go. Osgiliath. Um, let's talk female weight. The females are bigger, as is the case with many bird species. Um, they're 260 to 630 grams, or 9.2 to 2, 22.2 uh, ounces. So around four godwits equal the weight of this early Renaissance period sword. What's the sword? Like a kind of sword? Or yeah, there's a mi- there's, sword. No, 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 not like uh, not Excalibur. like a, not like Excalibur. Yeah, a kind of sword. Um, oh, here's a hint: okay. the sword was developed to sacrifice speed for reach and power. It played a pivotal role in the. 1689 battle against the forces of William of Orange. The swords wielders withstood a round of musket fire before hacking the shooters to bits. Shortly after this, though, the sword was made obsolete by developments in firearms. 22. It's about a five pound sword, five and a half pound sword. Sacrificing speed for reach. See, I want to say the rapier, but those are pretty fast. You can be pretty fast with those. But that would kind of go along with this weight here. 1689. Yeah, I'm going to go with the rapier. Final answer? Final answer. Yep. I think, okay, the correct answer is the Claymore, which was around 5.5 pounds. You vastly overestimated the weight of swords. 
Uh, yeah, sure did. Don't you watch like um, Shadowversity where it talks about how like swords are actually quite like way lighter than people think? Yeah, yes, but I don't know what five pounds feels like. <laughs> to me, that sounds like nothing. A five pound weight that's... in the gym is like nothing until you hold it out like arm's length. Um, and then it's not five that bad, pounds. but it's hard. I mean, it's not. It's hard to like swing around. But I've got like a rubber longsword, and I feel like it weighs more than that. I got a rubber longsword behind me. You can see it in the video if you're watching this on YouTube. So that that feels like it weighs more than five pounds. I thought that's not made of steel. I thought the fact that like this was a contemporary of muskets was uh, would be a red herring because I did not know that those the uh, the claymore. Seems like such a like classic medieval weapon is a Renaissance period sword. Yeah, that's why I went. Um, Musketeer swords, rapier. yeah, rapier. No, it's it it its heyday was like one battle, um, before like people really started to make muskets a thing. And uh, yeah, and then musket and then firearms made it obsolete so it had like really one battle where it was cool a giant two-handed sword that you could but, use as a spear part of it was it, not even part of the blade wasn't even uh sharp so that you could grab it and use it as a spear but um it was uh such a symbol of like strength and honor among uh Scottish Highlanders that it like is the everyone knows the claymore today and it's still like in symbols and coats of arms and stuff like that. Isn't that weird? Yeah, a rapier weighs two pounds, two point two pounds. That is, uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's that much lighter, but it is like a third of the weight of a claymore. Yeah. And also weight that's farther away from you is harder to wield. Yeah. There's an entire different way of using it. Interesting. Yeah. These are two very interesting and, uh, measure up facts that are, that are right in my wheelhouse. And I'm, Kind of sad I didn't get them. <laughs> it's like, finally, you're talking about Lord of the Rings and swords. I got this. The weight of swords is like notoriously, is a notorious thing for people to misunderstand. If you would well, have asked I'm me, bad how, with how, weight how, I would, in general. Yeah, well, if, you, if before doing the research for this, somebody was like, how heavy is a claymore? I would have said like 12 pounds. Or, or 12 feather. In Skyrim. <laughs> uh, it's just the feather symbol. Do you have uh, any fast facts? I have fast, major facts. I have fast facts. And I also have animal an animal encounter story. Ooh. I guess this is a good place to put it. But it wasn't mine. My It was my, my parents. They just went... My parents and sister just went to Puerto Rico uh, for Christmas. And... Uh, they went to the island of Vieques off the coast of the island of Puerto Rico. So it's island off the coast of another island. And um, like it's it's not easy to get there. There's like one ferry. Uh, there's there, are, there isn't a lot on the island. It's very um, 
it's it's not very developed very not it's pristine or more pristine than most other places anyway um they went there specifically to do the bioluminescent stuff uh, i think you you have done did it at uh um, in indian river right yeah titusville mm -hmm. i bibby and i did it as well um i don't know what your experience was but the bioluminescence was there but it wasn't very bright same um like the 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 whether the moon is out how whether there's um uh like light pollution nearby the time the 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 um temperature of the water and um just the time of year and all this stuff all these things uh need to line up for and the weather all needs to line up to be to make it um a good night for bioluminescence and it wasn't for us we saw some cool it was it was cool to see like some light some like you dip your hand in there and you can see its outline in like in grayish white um which was cool but they saw the real deal the bright blue pandora avatar huh. um stuff and that's and um that's due to t not quite microscopic but very very tiny um, organisms called dinoflagites, little animals that, uh, when disturbed, glow with bioluminescence. And no one knows why. Um, so, my dad did his um, his master's thesis on this. He did it. He, his master's thesis for landscape architecture was done on the dinoflagites in Vieques, in Mosquito huh. Bay, on Vieques. So, um, and I edited it, and I. Do not remember what the, <laughs> the answer was on why they do that. His whole thing was like how they need to, um, how like they're they're dying out and how like what they would need to do to the area, like adding in trees and um, and creating like a like a a better protected bay shelter for them and all this stuff, um, in order to like help the population recoup and grow and stuff like that. Because this is the best place to see them in the world. There's only a few places in the world where they even exist, and this is the best one. And they and so they got the full experience, which was super cool. It's like you you you're you're on a kayak and you can see in the middle. You can you're on the kayak at night and you can see fish in the water just because glowing blue because they're disturbing the the dinoflagites as they move through it. And, um, and so like yeah, d super jealous. Wish wish we could have gone, um, but also. The island has a horse problem. Like, like other cities have pigeon problems. This island has a horse problem. They're they're absolutely everywhere, and they're wild, and they're just they're just there. It's like they're like deer, but if they were everywhere, they're in the roads, they're on the streets, they're in the they're they're walking around the buildings. My mom has a video of her. They're just walking to the beach, and there's a horse just following them. It's just walking alongside them, and the car comes and just moves off to the side. And they're trying to drive through, and there's horses like licking their windows and trying to and and seeing if they have any food. And they're they've got pictures of there's just dozens of horses around them. It's like, huh. huh? That's it's like in Futurama, like, like the, wild... the the pest is owls. <laughs> wild horses, horses are that are like also very like friendly with people or like used to people 
So it's like a giant animal that wants food from you that you might not have. Oof. Yeah, it's uh I mean they didn't they did, they said they didn't feel like scared or anything. But um cuz the horses seemed really chill. But uh yeah, it's just it's I've never thought that there would be an area that just <laughs> it's just a bunch of wild horse not ponies, full on full on horses. And if you go out and walk around, they may just kind of sidle over to you and see what's going on and 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 hang out like if they were squirrels <laughs> or iguanas in South Florida. Yeah, it's like iguanas in South Florida. They're just you just walk into an area and there's a field and there's sixty of them. Whoa. So yeah, how do you spell V? Go check out. Oh, V I E Q U E S. Vieques horses. Interesting. I Beach actually haven't horses. looked it up because I, all I've done is look at the pictures that they that they showed me up of their vacation, and I was like, huh. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that that's 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 my animal story. Even though it wasn't me that uh, that encountered it. Um, but anyway, so fast facts about the bar-tailed godwit. During uh, so these mostly uh, live in the north. They are northern dwelling um, birds. They live uh, mostly northern Siberia and Alaska. And one subspecies lives in North Scandinavia. And that's that. I'm sure they spend the whole time up there and never travel or migrate anywhere. So no need to talk any more about that. Um, they mm -hmm. eat mostly bristle worms. Basically, bristle worm is basically like an ocean centipede. Um, it's a large category of, of, of marine worm. Um, and there are some that live in estuaries that, are, that can be snapped up by long, sharp, piercing beaks. Uh, they also eat clams, snails, and crustaceans. Um, they prefer to hunt in these estuaries and mudflats uh, to find these animals. And the last little piece of fun fast fact I will say before we move on to the major fact, which will probably have nothing to do about where they live, um, is that the godwit is, is a, either an onomatopoeia, which I just today found out I don't know how to spell. Um, it's onomatopoeia. There's four vowels in a row. Four different vowels at the end of that word. Um, so it's either an onomatopoeia for the bird's call. Or it comes from the old English phrase good or god wit. Which means good creature. Huh. So it does not have anything to do with deities. Uh, but the term of so the just... term of venery doesn't make sense. <laughs> nope, we're, it doesn't. We're back it has to full it's just circle. A, it's just a good creature. Well, they named it Godwit, and then I that I guess the understanding of that fell out of style or fell out of understanding, and then uh, some ornithologists said, "Oh, it's like." It's like a pantheon. 
because there's a bunch of them and they're gods, kind of. Elden Ring is probably a pantheon of gods. That It has a pantheon of gods that have names that are probably, they mean good something. Like Godwin probably means good something. Godwin, so that, Godric. Yeah. Godfrey. Yeah, maybe if it's like an old English thing, it's like good wind, <laughs> good uh, Rick, <laughs> uh, and that's all I got. Um, care to grace us with a? And I mean grace in the, in the most literal, and also least literal way possible. Guidance of grace. Actually, God actually means friend of God. Okay. Ah. Never mind. But there goes that theory. Okay. Let's talk about the fast fact I'm calling long haul birds. I mean, the major fact. Bar-tailed godwits have the current record for the longest seasonal migration in, in the animal kingdom. Although I wrote this animal down to do because I heard that fact. But then I looked it up just to make sure today. And I, you know, you know, how Google is like the, it'll say the caribou is the longest. It'll bring up the like big, big text. Caribou is the longest terrestrial mam, uh, mammal mi migration. I'm like that's more specific than I asked Google. It's more specific than I asked. I want the best of any animal, but uh, it might be this bird. Uh, Godwits breed in the summer in the northern hemisphere in the Arctic Circle uh, or close to it, but they won't stand for the Arctic winters, and uh, I don't blame them. They make a long journey south to temperate climates to wait out the big freeze. So there's different subspecies you mentioned. Um, I think there's four or more, um, but they, they travel to different locations throughout the year depending on what subspecies they belong to. So lap Ponica, which is, it's like, uh, I think you said the um, Lamosa Laponica Laponica is this subspecies. And they travel between Scandinavia and Africa, which is quite which is a good amount of time, uh, distance. And then mm -hmm. Men's Beery, uh, that subspecies, travels between Siberia and Australia, which is, that's quite a distance. Um, but then the Bowery uh, subspecies travels between Alaska and Australia or New Zealand throughout the year. Alaska to New Zealand, across the Pacific and quite a way south. I always think of New Zealand as being like right there next to Australia, like Madagascar is to mainland africa but it's pretty far away and down yeah like south yeah that's, that's a, a big difference if you travel there from here it's like a how much like a long flight or a couple long flights um so the bowery subspecies takes the cake for the longest migration they can travel a total of about eleven thousand kilometers or 6,835 miles. But they also travel distances of 6,000 kilometers or 
28 miles to 8,600 kilometers uh, or 5,344 miles in single shots, which is quite crazy. Um, so how do they do that? Yeah. So they need abnormally large fat reserves to be able to like expend energy for that long without stopping to refuel or rest. So in fact, they carry the most fat stores of any migratory bird. So they still need to get up in the air. So they reduce weight by having extra small digestive organs. And it's occurring to me that that might, they might've mentioned that in the, in the information I was reading because small, small, um, Digestive organs also mean more more fat is stored. So, like your digestive system breaks down and uses um, food energy, but if you have less, like if you have shorter intestines or smaller digestive organs, you're not going to be able to use it all, and more will go into storage. So they they so to lose weight, you're saying I need a longer digestive tract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. see, I see. The <laughs> gears are turning. So they also use uh, weather patterns and seasonal wind shifts to aid in their flight, and they seem to be able to predict changes in the wind and prepare for departure at the exact right time. That's it's true for a lot of migratory birds, where like. They seem to know when the wind is going to change before, like, humans can know with instruments. So it's it's pretty interesting. Hmm. But that's all I got for that. I see that the round trip is 18,000 miles. Yeah. So that means that, like, the trip there is more like nine. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, 9,000 miles. It depends on the bird. So they there were studies where they um they literally tracked individual birds. So some of them might you know the longest one might go like really far like 9000 miles. Yeah, for Boweri. Yeah. Limosa Laponica Boweri. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that they don't like go to the equator. Or something. Why they go to the literal opposite end of the the earth. The other... Close to the other pole. Well, they're going like if, to... Um, they're going from spring to spring, aren't they? Or like spring and summer to spring and summer. They're going to the other side of the earth where it's now... Where it's... They don't do... I said they don't do Arctic winters. I don't think they do winters at all. Yeah, but winter in... You know, Turkey is going to be fine uh, compared to, you know, winter in New Zealand is pretty bad. Yeah, but like places that experience seasons usually have explosions of nutrients in the spring. So if you can ride that spring wave, that that's pretty good. So it's interesting where they, they just go, they just follow spring. Just go wherever in the world... It's spring. Yeah. Interesting. Spring and summer. I, I always find it like really interesting the fact that there's um, that different parts of the world experience seasons at different times. So, if, you know, like it's 
it's not winter in Australia right now. But Christmas still happens in December for Australia. So for yeah. them, winter and Christmas are not things that they associate outside of like, you know, media and pop culture and stuff like that. But if it weren't for that, like, you know, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. What? It is summer. <laughs> it's December. Do they have a white Might? anything? Does it like other than like I don't high elevation? I'm not Is sure it, it like, snows. Snow even. I'm sh I, I I I'm sure it has. But um they, they don't I think the highest elevation is that like one big table mountain in the middle. Yeah. Um and that's not high enough to like just be a snow-capped mountain. There are plenty of places to enjoy snow in Australia. Some of the major destinations include the peaks of the Australian Alps, like Perisher, Threadbow, Charlotte Pass. Sounds like I was So wrong. I guess you have to go up in elevation and it has to be cold. I like I I was I figured it wasn't like a completely snowless continent. Um but it does seem like the south the 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 places closer to the south pole have much more temperate winters than the places closer to the north pole like i would rather endure a winter in south africa or chile or something like that than you know iceland or or uh norway or something like that but yeah, if i south... was just trying to Southern Escape areas the winter. get colder. Australia is... Yeah, like, I remember I went... Uh, where your place? I went to South Africa in the summer. And it was not cold, but I wore a sweater. It was July in South Africa. And I was I wore a sweater the whole time, pretty much. Like, it got, it got chilly. But it wasn't, like, freezing. <laughs> So it's really weird. And I was not prepared. <laughs> I was not prepared for it not to be blazing hot in July in Africa. It's Africa. But nope. It's 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 way way down there. <laughs> and I didn't do enough research. But yeah. That's a that's long migration. I wouldn't want to make it. I'd probably stop at the equator and be like, this is I'm I'm good, guys. I'll meet you. I'll meet you back up in Siberia come come spring again. <laughs> I'm going to hang out right here and die in Portugal. <laughs> in, <laughs> no, oh, I'm going to I see you're going to go to the something equator. else. Yeah. I'd I'd make it about halfway and I'd be like, okay, yeah, you know, the Mediterranean just mm, I may even stay here forever, in fact. <laughs> it was nice. But uh they didn't what happens ask me, to a, a lot of animals that retire to Florida. <laughs> the python is just retired to Florida. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a full species yeah. in retirement. The lionfish is just retired to Florida. <laughs> uh, so is the iguana. All right, so that's the uh, that's the bar-tailed godwit for you out there in Podcastia. Wade into your neighborhood estuary 
catch yourself a bivalve mollusk or two, then be sure to take a quick 18,000 mile jaunt to and from the tropics like the bar-tailed godwit here in life, death, and taxonomy. Hey Taxonomy Titans, I just want to remind you that we now have a Patreon. Patrons can see full video episodes and get shoutouts on the show. But ultimately, it's a way for you to help us cover some costs and get even better. Still, reviews are the best way to help us grow. So if you haven't left one yet, we'd really love to hear from you. As always, thanks for listening and engaging. <laughs> you know, I think it might be pronounced Caradriformes because it's not Chordata. Charadriformes? Caradriformes. Maybe. Caradriformes? <laughs>